Our New Testament reading today are, uh, is, uh, again, we continue with, the, with Paul's epistle to Timothy, his second epistle, 2 Timothy 2, reading verses 1 to 13. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Today, um, today we're looking again at uh, 2 Timothy and, and a very simple message today as uh, I want to consider with you the three metaphors that Paul uh, uses to help Timothy to ponder the Christian life. And so let's pray uh, as Paul has promised to Timothy that Christ would give us understanding today. Let's ask God for that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that Christ will give us understanding in all of these things. And so now with our Bibles upon our laps, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts today, Father, may they be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our only redeemer, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you look with you at, uh, if you look ahead of you in your Bible, at, uh, at 2 Timothy 2.1, you'll notice the significance of that opening verse, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And I want to just begin by um, helping to clarify what this word means. It's a word that we should all be able to readily define, but it's a word that can, that can easily elude us. So when someone sat you down at a coffee shop and they said, can you explain grace to me? in one simple sentence, it's very easy for us to get uh, all twisted up. It's particularly easy for us to kind of use an awkward word to thingify grace. When we pray for grace or we say, you know, I'll pray for grace for you, or we ask for grace, it's very easy to begin to think of grace in the terms of a commodity, an ooze, a substance that God gives to us. But grace is not a commodity. Grace is not raw power 
that we ask for from God, grace is the person of Jesus Christ. Grace is Christ. And he gives himself to us in such a way that we can possess all of the goodness of God. Outside of grace, that is outside of the living person of Jesus Christ, God is our enemy. Scripture is very clear about that. Outside of grace, Calvin says, God is utterly terrifying. Outside of Christ, the hairs in the back of our neck would stand up on end. We are born children of wrath, the Bible says. And so outside of grace, God is our enemy. In Christ, God is profoundly for us. God is eternally for us. In Christ, the Father comes to us and he says, your salvation is my care. Your salvation is my concern. And that's why Calvin in book three of the Institutes, he says that faith is this. Faith is a sure and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, founded upon the promise of Christ. And what a lovely thought that is that our salvation, our sanctification, our deliverance from sin, our transformation into the likeness of God's Son, it's God's care. It's the Father's concern, and He is determined out of sheer goodness towards us to make us into what we're supposed to be. That's grace, and that's good news. And this, Paul says, is the only way that we grow. Grow, therefore, be strengthened, Timothy, in grace in Jesus. It's the only way that we're made strong through Christ who brings us into the sheer goodness of God. In Christ, there is nothing but the outpouring of favor, nothing but the outpouring of God's goodness upon us. And we struggle with that, don't we? We're tempted to think that God has these fits, just like the giant despair had fits in the doubting castle, that God has these fits of distaste towards us, that God has these fits of resentment. God does chasten us out of fatherly love, but we're tempted to think that his favor grows thin at times as he watches us. When Luther was a child, he used to play Nicky Nicky Nine Door. I used to play Nicky Nicky Nine Door, I have to admit, as a child, and so did Luther. And on one of these occasions, Luther knocked on the door of the local butcher. And the response that came from the house was a loud bellowing saying, where are you, you hooligans? I'm coming to get you. And Luther was scared out of his wits and he tore off around the corner, hiding in the distance, looking back only to see the butcher open the door with a smiling face, holding out hands full of sausages for the children. And Luther never forgot that, how easy it is to misperceive God, that he is bellowing at us in hostility, when in fact he is bounding towards us in goodness and favor and love because of his son, Jesus Christ. It's wonderfully good news, the gospel. In Christ, God is only goodness towards us and nothing 
evermore else, just sheer goodness and love. What's interesting here in this chapter then is how you have this emphasis on grace at the beginning of chapter 2, and then Paul immediately transitions into these metaphors of work. The metaphors here, all three of them are very different, and yet they're all the same. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer. And they all represent very concentrated facets or various facets of concentrated labor. Paul says there's an important relationship here between these two things. This gracious rest in Jesus Christ in whom our salvation becomes entirely the Father's care and His concern. And then this call and this invitation to labor, to work. And history is replete with confusion on these matters. So that either we elevate the work and diminish the grace, or we elevate the grace in the wrong way and diminish the emphasis on work. And if you've read uh, J.C. Ryle's Holiness, and there's no reason for you not to read J.C. Ryle's Holiness, if you've read this, you'll know that this is one of his major concerns, that in his day there was this teaching in England that had dismissed the need for work. A teaching that had just said, we need to let go and let God. That's all we have to do. We just have to enter into the higher life. We've got to enter into the deeper life and let gra- grace take over and do everything. Now, clearly, grace is not based on our labor. It's not contingent upon our labor. And it's important in this passage that before Paul goes to talk about the work, he begins with grace. He starts with that word, the, the word of grace. Be strengthened, Timothy, he says. But God's goodness is also experienced through work. And I think that's Paul's point here. And it's a point easily missed in the teaching of Jesus. You'll notice that when Jesus invites us into his rest, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When he invites us into his rest, Jesus uses the metaphor of labor. Take my yoke upon you. He invites us into this metaphor of labor, and it's in the the midst of labor and work that we experience the rest of Jesus. We encounter the strength of God. We encounter the power of God. We encounter the goodness of God in Christ as we give ourselves to the work that God calls us to do in Christ. Now, in a very definite way, Paul is saying something to Timothy here about his work as a pastor. He is talking about Timothy's vocational calling to uh, the pastorate. But the metaphors apply to uh, every one of us um, in a very definite way. So first of all, the soldier. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Heather and I have been watching the Band of Brothers, um, and uh, apart from being just incredibly good TV, it captures the arduousness 
to put it mildly. It captures the arduousness of the soldier's life. Shockingly so, to the point where I'm actually ashamed to be eating popcorn while I'm watching it. Um, if you become a soldier, you are not signing up for an easy life. You're signing up for toil and torment and trial and tribulation and trouble and want. The soldier has signed on specifically for the purpose of warfare. The civilian, not so much. And Paul is warning Timothy of getting distracted and forgetting what he signed up to do. You see, the labor here that Paul draws our attention to is the labor of focus. Remember, Timothy, that you've been called into a warfare, the fight of faith. That is your primary identity, even if you're a nurse or a student or an architect or a pastor. Your primary identity is a soldier in war. And if you forget that identity, that's the path to fruitlessness. And it's also the path to evil. It's very easy. It's a very odd thing to think about. But it's very easy to get distracted on the battlefield. I mean, who would have thought that a soldier gets distracted on the battlefield? Bullets ricocheting everywhere, mortar fire, you know, all this screaming, all this terror, and you get distracted. It's very odd. But for many of us, that's what happens. And we begin to long for the civilian's life. We begin to long for comfort more than the fight. And when that happens, and the cares of this life, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for things, to put it in Jesus' words, they come in and they choke the word and we become unfruitful. Because we've been distracted and we've forgotten, not that we were soldiers, but that we are soldiers. And as soldiers, we have been called to do some very difficult things. Christianity, writes J.C. Ryle, is watchings and strugglings. It is agonies and anxieties, it is battles, and it's contests. And I know the word militant has a lot of negative connotations these days, but it would be good for us, every one of us, to sit down and take stock of ourselves and ask if there is much militancy at all about our Christianity. Do we possess the martial spirit that views each day as an opportunity to deny ourselves in order to fight the kingdom of darkness and to advance the kingdom of God's own dear son? Timothy, do not be distracted from your calling, Paul says. Secondly is the athlete. Compete in games as any good athlete would do. There are rules to these games, 
And there are no shortcuts to victory, Paul says. Paul's no stranger, as I mentioned to the children this morning. He's no stranger to these athletic metaphors. He cherishes them. I'm convinced that Paul was a sports fan. And he uses these things at various points. So run that you'll win the prize. Train yourself, Timothy, in godliness. Paul says, I discipline my body. I, I buffet myself to keep it under control, lest after I preach to others, I become a castaway. I'm just lost. Paul knows that these professional athletes, they train for months and months, if not years, in order to succeed in the event in which they were uh, competing. And the rules of the game, they demand strenuous effort. Strenuous effort within the race and strenuous effort leading up to the race. Now, for some reason, whenever I watch the Olympics, I have this perverse imagination, and I, I imagine certain events, people kind of coming into these events having no clue what they're doing. It's kind of Monty Python-esque, this imagination, like, like a, uh, a synchronized swimming, a bunch of guys have no idea what they're doing, just kind of splashing around in the water, and I start to chuckle to myself, imagining that scene, or something in the gymnastics floor of a man lumbering around with, with, a, with a twirly thing or a, a baton. You know, it's just, it's just kind of perverse silliness. And in a sense, this is what Paul's talking about, not Monty Python, but saying there's an absurdity surrounding the athlete who was fundamentally unprepared for the event. God's grace, which is the outpouring of his goodness to us, is experienced in full devotion to the exercise, training for the event, no half-heartedness. And he reminds Timothy here that if he wants to succeed in the Christian life, he must not only not be distracted, but he must give himself to the Christian race with all manner of exertion. Praying always, Timothy, in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, giving ourselves daily to the reading of scripture, washing our minds with the water of God's holy word, lifting up our drooping hands and strengthening our weak knees every day, making straight paths for our feet, Timothy, remembering your leaders, Timothy, considering their way of life and imitating their faith, denying ourselves mortifying our sin, sowing to the spirit and not to the flesh. It's a helpful exercise to think about the athlete, any athlete, professional, and all that they do to achieve peak performance. And then ask yourself whether you're really training yourself at all in godliness in any meaningful way. A.W. Tozer, the great um, missionary alliance writer and pastor, he said this, he said that if any given athlete trained for his competition the way that many Christians train for their life in Christ, he would be an utter failure. Is it any wonder that so many of us struggle with our vices and our bad temperaments and our worldliness in the way that we do? 
Timothy, you cannot take a shortcut. There are rules to the game. Listen to what J.C. Ryle again says from Holiness. If we say with Paul, O wretched man that I am, let us also be able to say with him, I press towards the mark. I strain. I strive. Thirdly, and finally, the farmer. Paul, he now brings us back to all of this organic imagery that Jesus uses in the Gospels. Jesus says, we're laborers in a vineyard. We are sowers in the field of God's kingdom. And farming, it takes a unique kind of patience. Many of you know I've been, I planted grass in my yard again, and I've been watching every day for the stuff to come up. It hasn't come up yet. What you sow, it doesn't immediately appear. One of the hardest things to do is to maintain hard work when you don't see immediate results. The athlete can see results fairly quickly. The soldier certainly sees results fairly quickly when they're cast into war. But the farmer is different. You see how Paul, in this verse, he, he sets the crop before Timothy as a promise. He sets the harvest before Timothy's eyes. And he says to him, if you work the field of God's kingdom hard, if you give it all that you have, Timothy, the crop will come. And as a farmer, you will be satisfied. Paul now encourages Timothy to hard work via perseverance. Keep going, Timothy. Timothy's incredibly discouraged. Timothy's seen some hard, hard things, enough to make him weep, enough to make him ashamed of Paul, enough to make him ashamed of the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, keep on going. You will be satisfied. Don't give up, Timothy. Hard work in the kingdom will bring results. And I hardly need to point out to us as this young, small church plant that we need to hear this very word. Hard work by God's grace will result in a crop. And that's a promise that we have to hold on to as a church. Paul puts it there before us. A crop is coming. Keep on working. Hard work over time will bring a promise. And so don't be distracted, Timothy. Number one, don't forget who you are. You're a soldier. Don't be half-hearted, Timothy. Train yourself in righteousness for the race. And Timothy, don't give up. The crop is coming. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.